Have you ever felt lost? Paralyzed by the twists and turns, the decisions and deadlines ahead of you? Have you paused before making a big decision, prayed that the correct path, the wise path, would be easy to see? If you've ever chosen the wrong path, you probably still live with regret after seeing where you ended up. There's a different way, a straighter path, but it's not found in our own understanding. Let the wise listen. Let the lost receive guidance. The wisdom of God is available to all. Are you listening? Good morning, church. My name is Nick. I am the pastor to students here at LEFC, and it is my privilege to continue our series that we've been in in the book of Proverbs, as we sought to look at wisdom and how we can apply that to our lives and as we walk with Jesus. We're gonna be talking about discipline and correction this morning, and how do we receive that well? So let us open in prayer as we continue in worship. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. God, you are a good, good Father who seeks to correct us, but for the sake of your love for us and our restoration, Lord, as we dive into your word, would we be aware that your spirit is here in this place? We are gathered in your name, and regardless of where we come from, your spirit is what unifies us. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to you this morning. We pray this in your name, amen. Amen, all right, we're gonna dive right into it. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Proverbs 12. Proverbs 12. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. We have ushers coming up and down the aisles. They would be happy to give you one. Or if you have your phones, you can go into the Bible app, hit events, click LEFC, and you should be able to track along with the sermon notes as well as the scriptures for this morning. So we're gonna be talking about discipline and correction. And here, Solomon talks about how we treat correction and discipline. So follow along with me. Proverbs 12, 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. I'm going to read that one more time. Uh, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. So we're gonna dissect this passage, but where we're gonna go is I'd like to address what is discipline and correction, and then transition to what does this look like from a biblical standpoint? What is God's heart and goal in discipline and correction? And then we're gonna apply that to this verse in the Proverbs so that it can help us understand and apply it. And then ultimately, I'd like to talk about why do we end up refusing discipline and correction? All right, so that's where we're headed. Uh, Let's start with defining discipline and correction because they're common terms, but I'd like to to start there so we can build off of that. So discipline is defined as the act of training people to obey rules using the method of punishment to correct disobedience. So discipline is, there is a disobedience, there has been an act that is incorrect and that needs to be corrected. And the method for doing so is a punishment. Example of this is I got my phone taken a lot when I was, I think, early high school uh, because I just didn't have good grades. 
it's, is anybody with me on that? Actually, don't raise your hands. You're fine. You're, you're fine. Um, my parents weren't like, it's a sin to have bad grades, but what they did teach us was, we want you to try hard. We want you to work your best. This is building your character. And so they weren't, I need this grade or that grade, but they were like, we want you to work hard at this. And when I would not do that, the punishment was, I got my phone taken away. And that was something that I valued, so I had to let my friends know, hey, I'm not gonna have my phone for two weeks because I bombed a test or something like that. What my parents were doing was there was a, a disobedience. They sought to correct it through a punishment, which was taking my phone in hopes that it would correct my behavior. Does that make sense? Correction is a little bit more of a broad term. Correction can be defined as a change that makes an error or an accuracy right. Now, in the NIV, it says correction. In other translations that you might be reading, it might say rebuke or reproof. And those are similar terms. It's this idea of a disapproval on something that needs to be corrected. So Solomon is using discipline and correction here, and it seems interchangeably. As he's comparing how we treat it, he uses both of these terms that are different. They are intertwined, right? Discipline is a form of correction, but correction seems to be a little bit broader and could be with different methods. But he uses them interchangeably. And I think it's because that the heart and the goal of discipline and correction are the same. And here's where we kind of transition into, okay, if this is what discipline and correction is, how does God view it? How does God discipline and correct? And what is the heart and goal of that? And here's where I think he can use discipline and correction interchangeably because both of those lead to God's goal, which is restoration. My heart is that as we engage with this idea of discipline and correction, we start to see that God's goal in correcting and disciplining is restoration. To paint a clearer picture of that, I'll talk about some justice terms that we use in our world. Has anybody heard of restorative justice? Okay. How about retributive justice? Okay. So retributive justice is an idea of justice centered on punishment to punish behavior that has violated law. So if you're in a community, a society that is retributive, meaning it desires retribution, it desires whatever has been wrong to be paid back in punishment, it centers on we have this law that we are to abide by. When you don't abide by it, you deserve to be punished. You deserve to be paid back for your wrongdoing. So in a society that would be retributive, it would be like, okay, if you stole something, uh, we're gonna steal something from you so that you know what it feels like and you don't do that again. Or if you've murdered, we will take your life so that you pay back what you've done to somebody else. There is a, a law that has been violated and the method to correct it within the society is a punishment. Now, on the other hand, there's what's called restorative justice. This is the idea of justice centered on restoring every party involved in a crime that was committed against a person or community. So this is a little bit different in that there's still a wrongdoing, but the desire is to restore every party, even the offender. So now it shifts a little bit. It's not just a law that has been violated, but it is a person, it is a relationship that has been hurt. 
And in order to correct that, it's not just a punishment, but it's a, an effort to restore every party within that instance. So what I want to make clear here is that both of these, if you're like, how does this play out in Scripture? Is God one or the other? Throughout the Scriptures, you'll see that both elements of both come up. There's elements of retribution, this idea of punishment in order to, to correct, and there's also this restorative justice. But I believe that what God displays time and time again is that his heart and goal and discipline and correction is ultimately restoration. I also want to make it clear that because of the gospel, God's not trying to pay you back when you do something wrong. It doesn't need retribution because that has been settled on the cross. Because of the gospel, God doesn't go, oh, you messed up. I got to pay you back for that one tomorrow. That has been settled on the cross. Do we experience natural consequences? Absolutely. And we're going to talk about that this morning. But ultimately, God goes, discipline and correction are a good thing because it restores you. Restore meaning repair, make as you once were. Right In the garden, there was perfect peace, perfect relationship with us and God and with each other. So God's going, I want to restore that and correction and discipline are how I do it. And I think this is important to note because it, at least for me, reshapes and reframes how we view discipline and correction. It's not this vengeful act to pay somebody back. It's actually a loving form of care and guidance. It's an effort to restore us. And so discipline and correction are simply an act that seeks to correct someone to set them on the right path. Sometimes a punishment is involved, but not always. To help us grasp this a little further, what I'd like to do is summarize some biblical examples of where this comes into play. Because I do think we see this big picture of restoration all throughout the scriptures. Now, I would encourage you in your own time, uh, please dive into those stories. Please read them on your own. But for the sake of time, I'm gonna summarize them so we can see how restoration is at play. First one that comes to mind is Adam and Eve. From the very beginning, there was a law that was given, do not eat of the tree, right? The, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from it. They disobey God, and in doing so, they have violated a law, but they've also fractured relationships with God, and that has impact on each other. And because of that, there's a discipline. God removes them from the garden. The punishment for your actions is you cannot remain here. And if it ended just there, we would think, man, punishment, done. God's done with them. But because we have 65 books after Genesis is because God is in the business of restoration. Even immediately after they start to experience shame because of their nakedness, what does God do? He clothes them. Because God is in the business of restoring, discipline and correction aims towards that. Way down the road, you have another example of Israel's wandering for 40 years. If you're not familiar with the story, God had identified his people as the Israelites he delivered them through miracles out of slavery in Egypt and said, I have this promised land for you where you will be my people. We will do life together. It's gonna be awesome. Come with me and I will lead you there. 
And through a long, long journey of complaining, of hardship, God gets them to the promised land. It's called Canaan. And as the Israelites get there and they start to examine and check out the area, they're like, God, there's people here. You're giving us this land, but it's already inhabited by the Canaanites. And God goes, this is the land I'm giving you. Go in, drive the Canaanites out, and it is yours. And because of fear, the Israelites reject and disobey. We're not going to go in, whether it's fear of losing their own lives, they don't think they can win. It scares them that there's this many people that they would have to try and drive out. But they disobey. They have violated what God has asked them, and they've displayed a hurt in relationship, a continual distrust in God. So what we see right away is there's a punishment. There's a discipline. God says, through miracles, I led you here. I get you here and say, hey, this is your land. I'm giving it to you. And you're saying you're not going to take it? You don't think I can do that? Fine. Then the punishment is that you will not, this generation will not see the promised land. They will not get in. And I think it's important to note that as we see some of these disciplines and punishments come up, a lot of them are actually natural consequences to our actions, as I was talking about earlier. Think about the scenario. They have no home, they're in slavery. God says, I freed you from this. I have a place for you, let's go. They get there and then they reject it. What's the natural consequence of that? They don't have anywhere to go. They're left to wander aimlessly because of their disobedience. So if that, again, if that was the end of the story, it would be there's a punishment, God's done with him. But we know that's not where the story ends. God says, yes, this generation won't as a product of their disobedience. But in doing so, in doing this wandering for 40 years, hopefully it will correct the people group in future years that you will learn to trust and obey me. So God raises up Joshua and they get into the promised land as God had promised from the beginning. Because you see, God is about restoration. It's not just about punishing and that's the end of it. He's seeking to restore his people. We can even look at the New Testament and see examples of this. Even examples of brother-on-brother correction and discipline. For those of you who have read Galatians 2, Paul actually corrects Peter. Peter had been eating meals with both uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And then as soon as a couple of Jewish Christian leaders that Peter, I guess, respected, was afraid of being judged by, came into town, Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles and started eating just with the Jewish Christians. And Paul was upset about it. Because if you've read his letters, one of his passions, one of his hearts in ministry was, there is now no Jew or Gentile for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's not one that's better than the other. You guys are all loved by Jesus, and that is displayed in his death and resurrection. And so Paul addresses Peter. It says, actually, he confronts him to his face. And Paul says, brother, you're misrepresenting the gospel. The gospel speaks one of God bringing the Gentile as well as the Jew into his salvation plan. And when you start showing favorites, you're misrepresenting the gospel. And in doing that, worse, you're leading other people. And people are going to watch you do that. And they're going to follow your example. 
Do you think Paul did that because he's like, ooh, we're both leaders. This is an opportunity for me to be better than Peter or to embarrass him. I, I would argue it, it was probably with the same heart that God has, which is one of restoration. I care about my brother. He's gonna continue to do ministry after this. He's gonna continue to have leadership and I desire to correct him for the sake of restoring him for his ministry. There was no discipline at play. There was no punishment, but there was correction. And the cool thing is that God actually invites us into it as well and says, if this is what I'm about for the sake of restoration, then this is what we're about as a people. And so in Galatians 6.1, Paul tells the church, when somebody is in sin, correct them gently. Don't let it go unnoticed. Don't let it go unaddressed. I'm trying to restore my people and discipline and correction are part of it. The NIV actually says, restore them gently. That heart of restoration up front. This is also at play in a passage that's often read in confronting sin as well as conflict. Uh, and it's Matthew 18, where Jesus talks about step by step, how do we handle somebody in sin? So what Jesus says is if somebody's found in sin, step one, address them individually. Talk to them and address the, the situation individually. Seek to correct them. And if it works, you've won them back. But if it doesn't, step two, take another person or two with you so that there's a couple of witnesses that can affirm what you've identified. And if they listen and receive it, you've won them back. But if they don't, step three, if even they won't listen to you individually, to a smaller group of people, bring it to your church at large and let them handle it. They have submitted to this body and its leadership. Bring it to the church. And if it works, you've won them back. But if it doesn't, step four, treat them as if they are not of this flock. The text actually says, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Treat them as if they're not one of us. I think that's so interesting. And again, we see natural consequence at play here, right? Jesus I, is like, I've given three steps to, in order to get correction, in order to correct, in order to restore. And if they won't listen to their brothers and sisters and their body at large, they're rejecting all of the things that make them a part of this church, they're rejecting the essence of what it means to be a part of the church. And so if they're rejecting all that, then give them what they want. As he says throughout scripture, we see that constantly, especially in Romans 1, where God says, I will give you what you want. I just don't think you're gonna want it when you reap the consequences of that. And I, I think this idea in Matthew 18 is, is awesome for addressing sin as well as, like I said, conflict. Now, conflict isn't always... Uh, sin. They're not equal, but some of these methods of like individual, small group, big church, they're good. But I think what it screams is God's heart for restoration. Jesus is going, correcting them for the sake of restoring them is so important. Take every opportunity you have. Talk to them individually. Bring somebody with you. Bring it to your church so that we might restore, so that God might restore. I hope you see in these biblical examples that God's heart in discipline and correction is to restore his people. 
Now, let's take all of that and bring it to Proverbs 12.1. I'm gonna read it again just in case you forgot it. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. So what Solomon is saying here is discipline and correction equals knowledge. And refusing discipline and correction equals a lack of knowledge. So he's tying this idea of correction and discipline to the ability to grow, to learn, to grow in wisdom and knowledge. But many of you are probably like, but stupid? Why does he have to use that harsh of a word? I tell my kids not to use that word. The thing I don't want us to miss here is that if he's saying receiving discipline and correction leads to growth, to learning, to knowledge, wisdom, then what would be the opposite of that? What he's stating is when you refuse discipline and correction, you're refusing the thing that brings you knowledge, which means you have a lack of knowledge, which means stupid. So he's, he's not saying you're stupid for not receiving correction and discipline. He's saying you're not gonna learn, you're not gonna grow, you're not gonna be restored if you don't receive discipline and correction. And part of that is that I picture this like if we're on a road. If there's this good road that God has called us to, to be on, there's fruit in it, there's joy, there's peace, and then there's this other road that has all these signs, danger, there's spikes, there's, there's cliffs. It's a dangerous road, don't drive on here. What I think he's stating here is that one leads to something and then you reap the, the benefits or the consequences of that road. If you're on that wrong road, it's not gonna be like, oh, I, I chose the wrong road. You're going to experience all of the hardships of that road. Matthew Poole wrote a commentary on Proverbs and he says this about verse one. Discovereth himself to be a most foolish and stupid creature because he is an enemy to himself and to his own happiness. I think this is super helpful for us as we engage with this text because what is being identified here is there are consequences to how we treat discipline and correction. There are consequences for what road we choose when we're on them. If you even flip over to the next chapter in Proverbs 13, verse 18, Solomon says this, whoever disregards discipline comes to poverty and shame, but whoever heeds correction is honored. Solomon's trying to articulate, there are consequences for how we treat discipline and correction. We reap whatever road we're on and when we're on it, if we're on that bad road, we're, we're hitting destruction. We're probably banging into other cars because everybody's driving chaotically. We hurt ourselves and we hurt the people around us. And what Matthew Poole is saying here is that we become an enemy to ourselves as well as to our own happiness. And I, I think this is where this idea of restoration that we've been talking about fits in with our proverb. Because if discipline and correction lead us to knowledge and wisdom and growing and learning, but God's ultimate heart is restoration, Matthew Poole is like, you're hurting yourself, you're hurting people around you, and you're refusing restoration 
when you refuse discipline and correction. So knowing all of that, knowing that the heart of God is to restore through discipline and correction, and knowing that there are consequences for refusing that, why do we do it? Why, why is there something in us that refuses discipline and correction? I like to highlight three. I'm sure you could probably think of more, uh, but these three have been very personal to me in how I've treated discipline and correction. So I think the first reason that we refuse correction is our pride. Our pride tells us that we can't be wrong. Therefore, who are you to correct me if I'm not wrong? When someone seeks to correct or discipline us, our immediate pride says, who are you to tell me I'm wrong? That, or it takes another form. Only certain people can discipline or correct me. Yeah, my boss, I let my boss correct me, but he signs my paychecks. I'm fine with him correcting me. But as soon as a brother, as soon as my coworker, someone that I would look at as equal in authority, as soon as they try and correct me, our pride speaks against that and says, who are they to correct me? Who are they to tell me I'm wrong? So I think pride is one of the biggest barriers for us receiving correction and ultimately restoration. The second one, second reason I think we refuse correction is we have blind spots. I think there are things in us, sin, disobedience that we're not aware of so when somebody seeks to address it, it's like, I, I didn't know that was there. Uh, maybe they got it wrong. Maybe that's not true. Maybe they're not around me enough. I see this when I drive with my wife. Katie's pretty good at receiving correction. She's actually right over here. So <laughs> uh, She's really good at receiving correction. If we're driving and I go, honey, you missed a road. She will receive that correction and go, oh, I didn't see it. Let me turn back around. How do you think I receive that correction? She'll say, honey, you missed that road. And I'll go, I didn't see it. Uh, it must not have been a road. I'll, I'll take another road up here. My, my blind spot causes me to refuse correction because I didn't see it. And because I didn't see it, there's something in me that goes, that can't be true. I must not be wrong in that. Third, I think we do come to a place where we become satisfied on the wrong path. As Pastor Tony said a couple of weeks ago, we come to a place where we say, I'm at peace with this. And often I think the reason is because it would be too hard to turn back around. I'm fine with not having good grades. Maybe I'm just a C student. Maybe I'm just at peace with this because it would be too hard to turn back around. Maybe I'm down this, this hard road and I'm hitting cliffs and I'm regretting going down this road, but I ultimately come to the conclusion I'm okay with it because it would be too hard to turn back around. I think both, all three of these played a big part uh, in my life as I've, I've, as I've sought to receive or reject correction. One of the biggest areas uh, was my battle with anger. Uh, growing up, I really dealt a lot with, with anger and being frustrated a lot. Um, and my parents continually sought to speak moments of correction. Nick, take a moment, take a breath, relax. Or Nick, why are you so angry? Just take a moment. 
But all of these would well up in my refusal of correction. My pride would say, who are you to tell me I'm wrong for being angry? My blind spot would be, I just didn't realize how bad it was, how much it was hurting me, how much it might've been hurting the people around me. And I genuinely came to the place of, maybe I'm just an angry guy. I'm at peace with this. Maybe I'll just get angry. I'll ask, I'll say sorry, and then people will forgive me. All of this relatively worked up until a moment where I was arguing with my brother. We were upstairs at my parents' house and we were arguing back and forth and it had gotten heated to the point where we were yelling at each other. And my mom had come up to to try and resolve whatever was going on, but in my anger, I was already boiling. I felt like she was taking my brother's side. So then I got mad with both of them and I just stormed off. I started walking to my room, which is only a couple of feet away, And I walk into my room and my brother yells something at me. He shouts. And if I was boiling, that spilled me over. And I just lost it. And in anger and in rage, I turned and I punched my closet door. Not realizing that my mom had been following me. And I became this close to hitting my mom. In that moment, all of the things that caused me to refuse correction melted away. My pride, how can I be wrong? Almost hitting a person that I love, stripped that away. How could, I, how could that be a blind spot anymore when now I'm face to face with it? I'm face to face with my mom who has this, this look of shock and hurt. And I think it was a mix of, I almost just got hit by my son. And not just that physical display, but I see the anger. I see the rage. And that just broke me. Even the satisfaction, maybe I'm just an angry guy. That no longer was sufficient for me. So in this place, I think God removed these refusals and I was just left embarrassed, not knowing what to do. So I ended up just starting to get upset. I ran to the bathroom, I shut the door and I locked it. My dad followed me. He had been downstairs and he had knocked. Said, Nick, can I come in? I I almost just hit his wife. I have no idea if I'm getting grounded. I don't know if he's gonna yell at me. I have no idea what would be the reason, but I kept refusing. I was such in a place of embarrassment and not knowing what to do, not knowing what to say, not knowing what to expect that I kept refusing to open the door. But my dad didn't let up. Dad, He kept saying, Nick, let me in. Nick, can I come in? So finally, I opened the door and I sat back down on the floor. And instead of punishing, instead of yelling, my dad got down on one knee and he said, Nick, are you okay? And in that moment, again, I just broke. And I kept saying, Dad, I'm just so angry. I'm always angry. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to handle it. I don't know how to react. I just kept saying over and over again, I'm so angry. And in this moment, I think the Lord used my dad to speak love and correction for the sake of restoration. My dad said, then why don't we get some help? Why don't you talk to somebody where you can process some of this that you're feeling? And that's exactly what we did. And I saw the Lord at work in that. Now, please hear me, I'm not perfect. I probably still wrestle at times. But I saw the Lord's faithfulness 
through my dad in discipline and correction. That's heart was not, let's just address this moment, but let's restore. Our God is about restoration. He uses discipline and correction so that he can restore us. So let us appreciate discipline and correction for what it is, which is an act of love and care and guidance. Let us embrace correction with humility, recognizing that we don't have it all figured out. I'd like to close with a quote from Timothy Keller. Be humble and teachable toward others. Be forgiving and understanding when you want to be critical of them. Be ready to learn from others when they come to be critical of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to gather. Lord, thank you for your word. It is a light for our path. God, thank you that you love us enough that discipline and correction are an effort to restore us, that you don't give up, that you don't throw in the towel. Lord, but we have seen time and time again through our own lives and through the scriptures that you are a God of healing and restoration. Would we embrace that with humility? Would we be a people that seeks to receive discipline and correction so that you can continue to restore us? And Lord, would you help us if we are in opportunities where we can correct others, where you have entrusted us to discipline or correct somebody? Lord, and let us do that in gentleness and in love and with the goal of restoration. Lord, we love you, we worship you, and pray this in your name. We want to create a space where we can respond and, and meditate on the heart of our Father revealed to us in that. So as we sing this next song, as we start, I invite you to just remain seated and reflect and meditate on the heart of God revealed to us through correction and through these words from his scripture. And as we sing, whenever you feel comfortable, whenever you feel led, I invite you to stand along with us and respond in singing out of the character of God. But let's start in a place of reflecting on who he is, and then let's stand and declare it to one another whenever you feel led or comfortable. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
church, let us appreciate discipline and correction for what it is. It's God restoring and seeking to restore his people. So if we are in a place to receive correction and discipline, let us do it in humility, recognizing what God is doing behind the scenes. And if we are afforded the opportunity to correct or discipline somebody else, let us do that in gentleness, love, and care, seeking to restore. If the Lord is stirring your heart with anything we've talked about this morning, we have people in our counter room, to my left, your right, that would love to talk and pray with you. But let me close with a reading from Hebrews 12, verse four to six. In your struggle against sin, 
you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood? And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So let us receive discipline and correction as we would from our heavenly father in humility. We love you. Go in peace.